Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 51, 1 through 12. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. This is the word of the Lord. I will at times come down here and hope that I don't fall um, because I want you to know that on a, on a night when we are faced with our own sinfulness, I do not speak to you as a superior but as a fellow struggler. You, you will notice in our Sunday services, just for the season of Lent, we're going to switch out this prayer for the Lord's Prayer. I'm just going to read it. It's not going to be on the screens but I would invite you to receive it and and perhaps pray it uh, as I read it. Here it comes. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Every week we're going to pray that, y'all. We're going to pray it often enough that you're going to get this deep suspicion that I think there might be something wrong with you. Let me let that cat out of the bag. I think there's something wrong with all of us. Amen. In my 30-some-odd years here, the hardest people to work with, without a doubt, the hardest people to work with have been the perfected people. I've not suffered any arrows from folks who are way outside of faith, from the pagan. Pagans have been super nice to me. The, The hardest people to work with, 
actually are the ones who can say, nope, nope, nope. I can name you a, a, a time and a date when God perfected me. Now listen, I, I'm not here to tell you that there wasn't a spiritual encounter there, not at all. I'm just telling you you're not perfect. And the very, the very insinuation that you would be perfect probably has kept you Maybe I'm not talking to you, I'm probably talking about your neighbor, not you, but your neighbor maybe. But the thought that you might have been perfected in that moment probably has kept you from maturing. Religious people don't very often like to be told that they're not quite there yet. We're a little bit allergic to being guilty. That's probably not limited to religious people, right? We're not super good at owning our guilt. There will come a point in this service when I will ask everybody to kind of migrate to the center aisle and then to come down in this giant column of people and to approach this first station of the liturgy tonight where somebody is going to look at you and you're gonna, they're going to say something like this. I'm, John's paraphrase here. Like, whew, you are headed in a deathly situation and, and you headed in this, they're not going to say all of this. It'd take too long. But headed in this deathly situation as you are, what you need is this ash to remind you that you are headed in a deathly, a situ, a deathly direction and you need to mourn that and do something about it and God can help you with that. But I'm not sure that God can help any perfect person. I mean, why would a perfect person need any help from God? When you come down front, we are going to mark you as imperfect. I am going to be marked as imperfect and in need, and in need of grace. Do you want to know where we got the ash, first of all, thank you to Jason Smith, who expertly is getting better and better at it all the time. Kind of goes on like butter. It's awesome. <laughs> you know where we got it? Eight, each and every year, we keep the palm branches, those palm branches, the Palm Sunday branches, the ones that we, we wave around and the kids wave around. Remember, we have the, the kid parade everywhere, and we're singing Hosanna, 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 just like the people did way back when, when they sang Hosanna, when they thought Jesus was the conquering hero. We suspect that some of those same people who waved the branches and said Hosanna, Hosanna, were disappointed that he wasn't conquering in the way that they wanted him to conquer, and that they might have been some of the people on the front lines the very next week who were saying what? crucify him. And so we take those branches from that most ironic of Sundays. We keep them. They get really dried out. And then Jason sets them on fire, grinds them into dust, and it becomes the ash with which we say we might have something in common with those people who can on one week say, Hosanna, as long as I get what I want. And then the next week say, crucify him when I don't get what I want. Thank you for coming tonight. <laughs> the goal of all of this is Christ-likeness. The goal of the season of Lent and the goal of Ash Wednesday service is Christ-likeness. Like I said, this is our 25th Ash Wednesday service. I will tell you that we, there was some suspicion when we started. A little too... Catholic, some people said, right? 
I hope you read that little information piece on the way in, because I, I, let me just very quickly recap what we're doing here, is we are preparing to either be baptized or to remember our baptism on Easter Sunday. We're preparing. By the way, there are people who want to be baptized during the Easter season, and we will see to it. But those candidates who will meet with Lisa or with me or with one of the pastors, perhaps Avarilla, as we prepare them for baptism, they shouldn't be the only ones preparing for that moment, right? The season of Lent is meant for the entire body to prepare to be consecrated, perhaps for the first time and maybe for another time, to be reminded that we are the people of God in the hands of God and in need of constant reflection, refinement, those kinds of things. We are starting a new series during Lent. Thank you, Jim Smith. Isn't that cool? And it's called Psalm Riding. Psalm writing. So throughout this entire season, what we'll do is we'll look at different psalms tonight. As you've heard read already, we'll be looking at Psalm 51, an individual lament psalm. It's a psalm in which uh, the singer, and if you have your Bibles, it probably says something like this. This is a psalm of David after he did that terrible thing to Bathsheba and then Uriah. Awful. We'll talk more about that later. I'm going to suggest that during this season of Lent, you should take some cues from the likes of King David, a man after God's own heart who failed miserably and saw fit, saw fit in an effort to heal, saw fit to write this psalm that he sang in the hopes that he would be reconciled, restored, and healed. Man, what would happen if the people of God, each of us and all of us, were to undertake the writing of the same kind of song? What would happen if we would find the grace and the courage to own our own broken places and to admit right out loud, I am not yet who God wants me to be, but in order for me to get from here to there, not only do I need to own it and admit it, I will need the grace of God. This is one of the more powerful songs that has ever been written. I love Songwriters, they, they sort of grab my attention. I'm really impressed by songwriters. Did you know, did you know that you have a pastor, had a pastor here who once won a Grammy? Dr. Terry Toller wrote a song called Lullaby for Teddy and won a Grammy, like one of those golden statues. Won a Grammy. In fact, he was a part of three different teams of songwriters who each, who, and three times won a Grammy. In fact, the year, do anybody remember the song, That's What Friends Are For? Remember that song? He finished second. <laughs> Lullaby for Teddy finished second to that song that year. Songwriters grab me. It's not just uh, that they can rhyme. It's not just that they know music. It's not just that they can rhyme with music. Somehow the best songwriters give you a glimpse into a greater story, a story with all kinds of background material, a backdrop, context. The song that we're going to look at tonight, I would put into the category of an apology song. Turns out, there have been a lot of apology songs over the years. Here's just a few of them. Back to December by, I think it says, Taylor Swift. There is Hello by Adele. Elton John saying, sorry seems to be the hardest Word. Brian Adams years ago saying, please 
Forgive me. And then there's I'm sorry by Brenda Lee. Well, I found a literary critic who said, man, some apology songs are great and some are terrible. <laughs> and I'm going to show you one that I think is pretty terrible and one that I think is pretty great. There is, I kid you not, a group out there called Huba Stank. Now, some of you are saying, Hoobastank, that is old news. That is, I mean, that's like a decade ago, right? And some of you are saying, what is this witchcraft that I'm hearing about tonight? This Hoobastank. They sang a song called The Reason. The Reason. It falls under the category of apology song. And remember, I, I want you to try to find the courage or the sensitivity, whatever it is, to try to write your own apology song to God in the hopes of reconciling, in the hopes of strengthening the bond between you and God. But I will tell you, some apologies are better than others. Here's a couple lines in this song. I know I hurt you, okay? But I'm not a perfect person. There's many things I wish I, I didn't do. But I continue learning. I never meant to do those things to you. Jason helped me with this today. There was an article in Psychology Today, <laughs> and here's the, the title of the article. Here are five ways to completely ruin an apology. Ready? Number one, say to the other. Now, by the way, I have been guilty of some of these, and perhaps you have been too. Here's a good way to ruin an apology. You say to the other, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Number two, well, I'm sorry that you believe or think that. It's kind of your problem. Number three, I'm sorry I did that, but, and then there's the great effort to justify the, the terrible thing that I just did. Number four, we just heard, well, you know, I'm not perfect. Number five, you just show a complete lack of remorse. There's another couple of lines that I didn't much like, neither did this literary critic. It says, I'm sorry that I hurt you. It's something I must live with every day. <laughs> but if I hurt you, it's actually something that you must live with every day. I really want you to write this apology song you may be saying to yourself, I don't think I, don't think I can write a song. I, I, okay. You may not be a musician enough to write the song, but try to think through the lyrics. Try to think through how you might articulate to God, I did wrong. I hurt you. I hurt somebody else. And then by hurting somebody else, I hurt you. Now, this same literary critic did find somebody else who had written a pretty good apology song, I'm probably not supposed to tell you this, but Willie Nelson is one of my dad's guilty pleasures. <laughs> Heard my fair share of Willie Nelson cassette tapes, if that tells you anything. There's a song that he didn't actually write it. In fact, he re-recorded it called uh, You Were Always On My Mind. Maybe I didn't love you quite as often as I could have, and maybe I didn't treat you quite as good as I should have. If I made you feel second best, I'm, girl, I'm sorry I was blind, but you were always on my mind. The critic says, these maybes here are not meant to excuse him, but rather the opposite. 
He is here ensuring that the apology covers every scope of the offense. He says this, little things I should have said and done, I just never took the time. It's me, he says, I'm the problem. I delivered the wound, and you deserve better. Now, which of these two provides for a future for the relationship? I'm not perfect. And I'm sorry I did that thing, but justification. Does that provide for a future for the relationship? Or might this be better? I'm the problem. You deserve better. Psalm 51 seems to agree with Willie Nelson, (laughs) or at least the writer of the psalm seems to agree. This is perhaps the Bible's most famous I'm sorry song, and more important than being the most famous, it's perhaps the best example of how we ought to write our own I'm sorry song. The hope of Psalm 51, like Willie's song, is to rekindle to reconstitute, to to reconnect, to reconcile. Let me say this as your pastor, and let me say it as clearly as I know how. We, me included, need to learn to write and sing our own versions of David's apology song. 51.1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, steadfast love and mercy. Those are going to be constant themes throughout the season of Lent. Constant themes throughout the season of Lent. But David here is accessing God's mercy and God's steadfast love because he has royally messed things up. If you don't know the story, let me tell you the story. And what I'm about to tell you is reportedly true that David... Resting from battle, he sent his soldiers out. King David, enjoying the spoils of victory, was out one day, looked over, and he saw somebody else's wife, thought she was beautiful, sent for her, and raped her. And she said, now I'm pregnant. David, not being able to handle the political fallout here, said, well, I got to do something here. Well, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Said to his military people, okay, Bathsheba's husband is a guy by the name of Uriah. Here's what I want you to do. Remember, this is somebody who is known as a man after God's own heart. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to send Uriah out to the front line, and when he is killed, and he was, then the coast will be clear, and I will take her as my wife, and no one will think a thing. Except then the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted him and said, you have done a terrible thing, and God knows, (laughs) and God knows. David in 2 Samuel 12 admits it, and so as the tradition goes, David then writes this song because what else was he going to do? He is without options. He is completely guilty He is not trying to justify it. Well, God, I'm not perfect. Well, God, I I wouldn't have done this, but no, he is throwing himself 
into the arms of steadfast love and mercy. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you might be saying, wait a minute, no, there was Bathsheba and there was Uriah. There's all the other people that he's lied to. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this verse is trying to say that harm wasn't done to those other people. I think what he's trying to say here is, I forgot you, God. And I forgot what it meant to follow you. I forgot what it meant to be shaped by you. And when I forgot you, when I forgot you as the ultimate lens, the ultimate source of life, it was sort of inevitable that I was going to hurt anybody and perhaps everybody else. David forgot to remember God. David forgot to remember God, and as a result, hurt people really badly. And by the way, friends, when you hurt people really badly, when you violate your relationship with another human being, that is also understood as a violation with your, uh, in your relationship with God. Let me, let me say it like this. If you say you love God, but you are not willing to work on mending the fences between you and another person, it is hard for God to believe that you love God. In fact, if you want to serve this God and strengthen your bond with this God, then think about who you need to go talk to, with whom, to whom should you be reconciled. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner, when my mother conceived me. Now let's be careful here. This is art and poetry. <laughs> I don't think this is a scientific statement. This is David who has done something that he thought he was not capable of doing. He's done the unthinkable. And so this is a poetic, artistic way to say, what is wrong with me? And he moves immediately from there to, God, I am at my end. I, I have nothing left here. I, I'm, if I'm going to be a different person, I need you to help me. Listen to all the things that he says here. Teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me. Cleanse me with hyssop. Wash me. Let me hear joy and gladness. God, I'm going to need all of this help. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. And then this famous verse, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. That word create, I think, is loaded. David would understand this God as creator. David would understand this God as having the capacity to create like no one else could. David knows if he's going to have a prayer, if he's going to have any kind of hope whatsoever, it will not be, it will not be because he will finally pull himself up by his bootstraps it will be because God will do something that only God can do and create something new. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Down in verse 16, you have no delight in sacrifice. I can't buy you off, God. This, this relationship I have with you is not one of transaction after transaction after transaction, although sometimes you get that impression, and sometimes, sometimes I struggle with that too. If I do just enough, God, will you finally turn toward me? If I were to give you a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit 
and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. And yet so many Christians and maybe even the pastor spend so much time trying to not be broken and contrite. I mean, how much energy do we spend? Maybe it's not you, maybe it's just me. How much energy do people like me spend trying to give you the impression that I'm fine? How many of us were raised with the sneaking suspicion that you weren't actually allowed to be free with how it is that you were broken, that you are broken. <laughs> I was talking with, with Tim before church, and we were talking a little bit about this, and he said, well, I kind of looked at people, the people who would go to the altar every week and go, yeah, what is wrong with them? Going each and every week, can you not get this worked out? Now, he says, now I look around at the people who never go to the altar. He says, what's wrong with them? Backdrop, context. There is a larger backdrop that we have to talk about. And you can hear it. There are hints of it. There are whispers of it throughout this passage. The larger backdrop that we have here that David has here is the same one that you and I have access to. If you will notice, every once in a while David will say something that gives you the impression that David believes that God will receive him again. That God's grace, even in the midst of the ugliness, even in the midst of the nightmare that David has caused, you get the impression that David believes if he comes to Jesus just so, if he comes to God just so, that God will receive him if he has this broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Walter Brueggemann says it like this, it is the wager of the psalmist and the deep conviction of ancient Israel that Yahweh, or God's mercy and steadfastness, will override and serve as a decisive alternative to sin, transgression, and iniquity. David is betting on the grace of God. He's banking on the grace of God. But David has done a terrible thing. I haven't done that terrible thing. I mean, David's sins can be described in the most stark terms. It was rape. It was murder. It's the stuff of movies and dramatic television shows. And surely... I, John, have nothing in common with a criminal like David, the man after God's own heart. This is the question I've asked myself this week. I haven't committed a violent crime in weeks. What, if anything, is here for me? Why did David, faithful David, full of faith David, the shepherd boy, the giant slayer, the greatest of Israel's kings, how did David fall so far? How could he be capable of this kind of life and these kinds of choices? Well, it's because he forgot to remember. It's because he forgot to remember. And having forgotten about God, David drifted, perhaps drunk on his own successes, drunk on his own power, David drifted inch by inch, not mile by mile. David drifted inch by inch and wandered away. 
He wandered from faithfulness to infidelity, from life lived by the Spirit of God to life lived according to the spirits of the time, from a man after God's own heart to a man after whatever he can get. It sounds all too familiar. But honestly, don't we all, including me, have the capacity to live as if God is absent? Maybe you, like David, are a bit intoxicated by your strengths, <laughs> your successes and the skins on your wall, a dangerous sense of entitlement blinded David. He didn't realize it until it was too late. He had forgotten to remember. That might be you, blind, but maybe more dangerous, blind to your own blindness. Or... Maybe you are more like me. You have the capacity to forget to remember God as well, but it's not because you're drunk on entitlement. Perhaps you are frightened into forgetting, frustrated that things aren't going well or at least not going well enough. Sometimes in my frustration, I too, like David, forget to remember. It's not just entitled heroes and kings who forget. It's chronically normal human people like pastors and teachers and whatever you're doing for a living. I am happy to report that there is for each of us, like there is for David, the possibility of new and restored, newly created heart and connection with God, which can result in a new way of being alive, health, and wholeness and reconciliation is possible, but it's on the other side of your honest acknowledgement and your own song of lament. It'll take some courage to own your own failures. It'll take some courage to own your own frailty, your, your broken places. It'll take courage to acknowledge that you are a sinner, a sinner. Those aren't easy songs to write or sing, but you and I, like David, get to sing against a larger backdrop. We will sing for the one who knows us and still chooses us. We will sing for the one who can make all things new. We will sing for the one whose mind is made up about us. And yet, this is not cheap grace. This same God will hold you and me accountable. We will be held accountable when we live in opposition to life, breath, hope, spirit. When we choose ourselves and our own interests, leaving wounds and wounded people in our wake and leave them with, well, I'm not perfect. What did you expect? Listen, I believe it. God's mind about us is made up, and the news is good, but God won't and perhaps can't breathe the life of reconciling spirit into the lungs of a person unwilling to receive it, a person unwilling to confess, repent, and submit to costly and revealing and yet healing grace. So I hope that you will think through this season how it is that you have failed. I hope that you will think through this season how it is that you would articulate to God this song 
of lament, this apology song. I hope it sounds more like Willie Nelson. I hope that we'll sing it honestly. I hope in our songs we will own our deathly tendencies. That's why we use the ashes. The ashes are symbols of mourning, the acknowledgement of deathly circumstances, and left to ourselves, there is lots to mourn. But open to the grace of God, we might just experience what God and God alone can do with death and ashes and dust. So here come the directions for the liturgy. So musicians, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Now, it may seem a little morbid, but everyone, even the smallest among us, <laughs> if you approach one of these two terrifying people, Jason and Lisa, <laughs> every one of us is going to hear this as they trace the sign of a cross on our foreheads. Remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. Repent and believe the good news that God loves you. The love of God is the larger context, the larger context against which, the larger backdrop against which we will learn to write and then sing our songs of lament, our apology songs. This isn't just to cleanse your conscience. Does everybody know that? This isn't just to cleanse your conscience. The hope in an Ash Wednesday liturgy, the hope is that we will start the process of rebuilding and strengthening the connection between God and God's people and between you and somebody else. So here are the directions. In a second, after I pray to bless the elements, and we do that short liturgy as well. In a second, I'll ask everybody to stand to their feet and to move to the center. You'll all move to the center. And then I'll ask you to come forward. Come forward and make sure you get a good look at the cross as you come forward. A symbol, not of God's anger, but of God's costly love. When you get close enough down here, it'll either be Jason or Lisa who will take a little bit of that ash Trace the sign of the cross on your forehead and say what we've said before. Make sure that you hear that last line. Listen all the way to the end. Repent and believe the good news that God loves you. And then, if you would, start praying. <laughs> now, if you go to this altar or to that altar over there, somebody will meet you there and pray. Here is where we would pray those prayers for healing. And just like we say every Sunday, it might be a prayer for emotional healing, physical healing, relational healing. Somebody will meet you there or meet you over there and pray that prayer with you. As you keep walking, you'll see that there'll be a communion station over there and another one over here. I hope that you will go by and receive these resources for life and reconciliation, the broken body and the shed blood but go again with open hands. Go with open hands. What God wants to do, you can't do for yourself. When you get close enough to the person holding the bread, that person will take a piece of bread, press it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. 
take that piece of bread, dip it into the cup. When you do, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then if you'd like, circle back around and sit in your seats and continue to worship with all of us. Or you can go if you need to go. But man, I hope that you will do some good work tonight and consider how it is, how it is that you are broken and how it is that God can bring hope and restoration and reconciliation even to you. If God could restore David, then God's love is strong enough to restore you. So Heavenly Father, bless these moments and bless all of these elements. And with them, God, remind us of your grace. Remind us, God, of the power of this grace. Remind us of the necessity of our coming to you in total and in brutal honesty. Remind us, God, that we write these songs of personal lament against this larger backdrop of your love for us, the choice that you are making for us. If you were helping us to serve the meal, would you go ahead and come now as I do this liturgy? It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you and every time you eat of it, remember me. In the same way later he would take the cup, hold it up before them and say, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant and every time you drink of it, remember me. And now, if you would, all the way across the sanctuary, if you would, stay, all of you who want to, again, all are invited, but none are compelled. If you would, stand to your feet and then just sort of make your way to the center and then slowly make your way to the front. <laughs>